on this day, this beautiful summer day, where we not only celebrate our fathers in our lives, we just, we can come together as your people and celebrate you, Heavenly Father, for being the Father who never leaves us or forsakes us. And we pray as we look at this challenging text for each and every one of us, we ask, Lord, you would give us your thoughts, that my words would be yours. You would take our wills and bend them to your own, and you would take all our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned at the welcome, we're in the season of Pentecost, and in the lectionary, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in these verses. I'm going to fly over this, chapter 9, kind of at 10,000 feet. And Bishop Mark will come back next week and fully exposit 51 to 62. But I wanted to look at this at 10,000 feet because chapter 9, we haven't been in Luke in the previous weeks, and you need to kind of grasp what's going on here in its totality. Because what's going on in Luke is Luke 1 through 8 in Luke's gospel answers the question, who is Jesus? And then you get to chapter 9 and Luke takes a pivot. And so what we discover in this verse today is a wonderful re-examination of all of our lives as we seek to go forward on mission across the West Shore. And what we learn in these verses, 1 18 through 25 and then 51 through 62 is that a, a student Christian, which is also a disciple, which is also a Christian, a disciple is one who has a new identity, has new priorities, and is a person who lives out these priorities and this identity with grace and mercy in where they live, where they work, where they play. So let's look at this. First, a disciple is one with a new identity. Notice verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The Greek word that's used here for life is the Greek word psyche. We get the word psychology from it, not the Greek word bios, which is biology, just heart-pumping life, right? Luke uses this word because he's talking about the inner life. And what he's saying and what Jesus is saying is your old way of identity, your old way of gaining a sense of self is over. You have to, in a sense, die to it. And through Jesus, he gives you a whole new reconstructed identity, a whole new true self. He's not suggesting that in his culture, which is the ancient Near Eastern culture, approach of losing yourself. Because many, even in the Eastern world today, the deepest form of consciousness, the deepest form of enlightenment is you lose all sense of your individual self. You merge and become part of the all. That's Buddhism, by the way. You lose all sense that you are an individual. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's also not saying, like we do in the West, go and find yourself. Figure out what you really want and go for it. Because there's a problem with that. Because 
your interests change. The worst thing to completely build your life on is on some deep desire that changes 10 years later. You see, it feels like Jesus has us in mind when he says, you'll never find yourself by trying to find yourself. <laughs> he says, the ordinary way you gain a self in this world is by gaining things from the world. Don't go there, he's saying. Because that's the way we do it, right? And in fact, that's exactly what happens at the end of chapter 9. And we're going to see this in a little bit. Some people in our culture say to us, you're nobody unless you have career, money, status, relationships, wealth. Then you're somebody. And that gives you a sense of self. Other people in traditional cultures say, no, you're not somebody unless you have a family, a white picket fence, a husband and a wife and kids and grandkids, and then you're somebody. But Jesus is saying, I want you to know that if you get the whole world, the whole world cannot give you a stable self. Your career cannot give you a stable self. Your financial portfolio cannot give you a stable self. Because if you try to get an identity by gaining things of the world, whatever they are, they're radically unstable. And eventually, you lose them. You'll never know whether the things you're trying to get will be enough, quite frankly. He says, instead, try to gain yourself by, above gaining things by building your life on me. You'll have a self you can't lose. You have a self that's stable. You have a true self because you are built to know Jesus Christ. I preached on this passage 10 years ago when we were at the middle school. I keep my sermons. I said, what did I tell these poor people 10 years ago? The emphasis was on denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. And that's, that's true. That's true. But that's not, Jesus is going way beyond that. A disciple is not just someone who just kind of complied their will to him and to his or her, but rather having his whole identity reshaped, reformed. Discipleship, being a Christian, is not just a matter of bending your will to his will, but melting your heart into a whole new shape. Like a skilled potter who when the lump of clay doesn't work out right, they don't take the clay and just throw it in the trash. They're skilled. I would do that. I'd throw it in the trash, you know. But a potter takes it and restarts over, remolds it into a beautiful vase, into something beautiful, takes it and reforms it, gives it a new identity. And that's what happens to us in Jesus Christ. Secondly, a disciple is someone who not only has a new identity, they have new priorities. Jesus is simply saying here in this passage that my disciple is utterly focused on me and nothing else will do. Nothing else will compete for first place in your life. You get to the end of the verse in verse 62. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's using agricultural imagery here. 
you know, because when you had a, a mule or an ox or a horse and they're pulling the plow, you got to keep your eye, right? And I think the word fit is kind of kind of unfortunate. When you use the word fit, you almost think you're not, you're not fit for the Christian life. And that's not what he's saying here. No one qualifies, in other words. My friends, none of us are fit, if that's the meaning, right? It's all by grace. But what he's actually saying is, unless your relationship with Jesus Christ is the highest relationship, unless you're delighting in him, serving him, resembling him, knowing him as the highest priority in your life, the healing power and the kingdom of God will not be evident in your life. There will be no assurance that he is doing this work in and through you. You will not be a useful instrument for the Lord. Even more striking is when he says, let the dead bury their own dead. That's pretty curt. Seems the most in your face. What he's saying is to be spiritually dead means to be as blind and as deaf, as insensitive to the spiritual realities as the physical body is to physical realities. And therefore, he's saying, if you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I got things to do. I can't put him first right now. I, I have my career. I need to have some fun. I'd like to put Jesus first, and I'll get to it someday, but I just can't put him first yet. What Jesus is saying is if you get who he is, you won't put it off. And if you get it, you never put it off. And Jesus is saying, wake up. He's saying, I have to be first priority in your life. If you don't put me first in your life, it's not like you're just kind of uncommitted or kind of lazy or disorganized or undisciplined. You just don't get it. You don't really see me. You don't see who I am. You need to wake up. Grab yourself. Shake yourself awake. Think of it this way. I'm Gene Sherman. I'm all Gene. I'm all Sherman. It's not like the top half of me is Gene and the bottom is Sherman. All right? All right? So if you won't have Gene, you can't have Sherman either. Because if you keep the Sherman out, I can't come at all. To say that Jesus has come into my life, forgiven my sins, answered my prayers, saying, I do want to believe in you, O Lord. I want the assurance of knowing you and believing in you. Do this and that for me, but don't be the absolute master of my life, the first priority in my life. Be Savior, but stay out as Lord. How can he come to me at all? Because he's all Savior and he's all Lord. He's Savior because he's Lord. Imagine, this is the creator of the universe. If the distance between the earth and sun, which is 92 million miles, was the thickness of a piece of paper, 
do you know that a diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high? Do you know our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe which we can see with our technology? Do you know that part of the universe, unless we can see, might be just the smallest fraction, as if it were, a speck of dust compared to all the universe that there is? <laughs> Think of that. So if Jesus created that, as some casually assent to, who holds all together with the word of his power, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Really? You know, that to do things for you at your beck and call? Think about that. So if you're thinking, yeah, I believe it, but he's, I, I can't make it my priority right now. What Jesus is saying here, there's some spiritual deadness there. You don't see it. Wake up. Make him your new priority. So you have a whole identity, new identity, a whole new priority. And third, we're people who live as people of mercy and grace to the world. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. We didn't read the passage in Luke 9 of, of the transfiguration, so don't be too hard on James and John. Number one, they're young. And excited. You know, I was young and one-sided at one time. You still think I'm excited, but I, I was more excited. You should have seen me then. James and John were very excited. They were the sons of thunder. And they just saw in the transfiguration Moses and Elijah bow down and worship Jesus. And then Jesus takes them to Samaria where these Samaritans reject Jesus. And James and John are good Jewish boys. They know who Elijah is. Because in 1 Kings 11, 18, Elijah battles the prophets on Mount Carmel, and what does he do? He calls down fire. <laughs> Torched. They're done. 2 Kings 1. Elijah goes, that's pretty good. King Ahaziah doesn't want anything to do with Elijah, so he sends 50 soldiers to take care of him. What does Elijah do? Calls down fire. He sends 50 more soldiers. What does Elijah do? Calls down fire again. He calls 50 more soldiers. And they go, please, no, God, no. And Elijah says, all right. God says, all right. He has mercy. Three waves. So James and John say, ooh, it worked for Elijah. It can work for us. 
right? You can see how that's natural for these young followers of Jesus. So what does Jesus say? Stop it. No, no, no. Fire in the Bible is always an indicator of the judgment of God. He rebukes them, and he doesn't rebuke the unbelieving Samaritans. He rebukes the disciples. Jesus always is modeling for us grace and mercy. The soldiers come to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he do? This great skirmish comes, and Malchus gets his ear lopped off. What does he do? Heals the ear. He's nailed to the cross. People are jeering him, yelling at him, mocking him. What does he say to the Lord? Father, forgive them. They don't get it. So why is Jesus the un-Elijah? Why doesn't he call down fire on these Samaritans? Luke chapter 12, three chapters later, he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and oh, how I wish it were already kindled. The biblical imagery means the judgment of God always. And secondly, Jesus says he'll bring fire on the earth. How's he going to do that? He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And I am burdened until it's accomplished in Luke chapter 12. See, the fire didn't come down on the Samaritans. The fire didn't come down on the soldiers. The fire didn't come on the crowd. Because the fire came down on Jesus Christ. If you ever watch the Bible Project and Tim, Dr. Tim Mackey, just I encourage you to watch those videos. They're phenomenal. Tim Mackey calls this a hyperlink. The fire is an image of a greater fire that Jesus is referencing. Because he was baptized by the immersion of the judgment of God for us on the cross. He got what we deserved. All those fires are pointing to that fire. The reason the soldiers get a healing touch instead of judgment, the reason it didn't come out of the Samaritans is because it came down in Jesus Christ. He came to bear it for them and for us. He came to take the rejection. Verse 22, they rejected him. Shouldn't they be rejected? No, he's rejected for them. The Son of Man came to be rejected and to be killed. This means, and it's the secret to changing our identity, and a cheat secret to making him the priority. Unless you see that he took the fire for you and came down and drink deeply from that water. Until you see that, you won't get the identity, you won't get the priorities. You won't be able to sing as we do at the end of our service. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I've had some say to me in my pub ministry, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I should build my life on the priority of Jesus Christ and embrace this change. I'll do that. <laughs> you can't do this on your own strength. You have to change your affections. And there's only one person who can do that, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask him. 
Thomas Chalmers, a famous Scottish preacher. The, the, the Puritans had a great way of doing these great sermons. He, he called this sermon the expulsive power of a new affection. He says, seldom do our habits or flaws disappear by process of extinction through reasoning or by force of mental determination, for it won't last. Brothers and sisters, the only way we can deeply change is to have our heart reforged, reformed, by looking at the cross once again. Because the reality is, our hearts have an object of love. The question is, what are we loving? The heart's desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object of love is unquestionable and unconquerable. It's only when we gaze upon the cross and recognize that we are in the family by his cross through the spirit of adoption, it's then and only then the heart brought into the mastery of one great predominant affection we're delivered from the tyranny of all our former desires and our heart is reformed, reshaped. Jesus is saying, your career can't die for you. Your financial portfolio, as great as it is, can't die for you. Your relationships can't die for you. And those will all pass away. Don't give the title deed of your heart to anyone but Jesus Christ. Don't have any other master but Jesus Christ. He's the only one who, if you receive him for who he is, he'll never leave you, never forsake you, and you'll always live under his banner of forgiveness and righteousness. There has to be a living out of this which brings you into finding the new identity, finding the new priorities, and living a life of radical mercy around us. So let's apply this, practically speaking. First, number one, discipleship is not an option. Do you see the place where he says, if anyone would come after me, he must follow me? You see what he's saying? He's saying, come after, it's a general term. If you want to have an experience of me, if you want to have anything to do with me, a relationship with me, you're my disciple. There's not two kinds of Christianity. Those who take him serious and those who take him casually. No. There's one Christianity as disciples. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. To have anything to do with Jesus is to follow Jesus the way he defines it. New identity, new priority, new mercy. It's not an option. It's never, I'll get to it someday. Secondly, on the other hand, hear me, it's also a journey. It's a process of grace. Because we're saved by grace. We're sanctified by grace. Set apart by grace. Because the next nine chapters of Luke's gospel is all about discipleship. And he's going on a journey. <laughs> and Luke is saying discipleship is a journey. So yeah, on one hand, it's decisive. We Okay, well, I'll follow you, Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a process. And we don't have it all together. <laughs> it's, it takes time. It's very important that you get understand that. If you think discipleship is the way you're being saved, the way you're being committed, 
being focused and giving Jesus priority. That's the way I please God. You're missing the point. He doesn't say, if you follow me, I'll go to the cross for you. He's saying, I'm going to the cross for you. Follow me. <laughs> you're not saved because you're a disciple. You're a disciple if and only if you understand what he has done to save you. And he gives you exactly what you need day in and day out. So it's a moment of decision, yes, but and you need to leave, but it's a journey, a journey of grace. Third and finally, the sign of a true disciple, a growing gospel disciple, is gentleness. What really amazes me about the heart of this passage is as the disciples, you know, they want to call down fire. They're showing that they're committed, right? They're committed to Jesus wholeheartedly. The one thing about people that are really committed to following is, number one, they take their faith real seriously, and two, they're really hard on others, right? We all know those kind of folks. We've all been those kind of folks, right? It's a process. May it not be said of us. We never say, what's the matter with you? Why don't you get it? The, e the more you get the gospel, the easier you are on people, especially unbelievers. Why would, they, why would they get it? Jesus is saying to James and John, you're not my terrorists, boys. My disciples know they're saved by grace, so when they look at people who aren't doing it right, they don't say, why aren't you as committed as I am? They don't call fire down on heaven on other people. You know, why, why, why were they like this? It could have been their racism because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. It could have been just because they knew more Bible than they did and they were just harsh. But see, all that goes away when you see he took the fire for us. And as you know Jesus Christ, grow in Jesus Christ, and serve Jesus Christ right here at Christ Church. All that goes away as he is more central in your life. Jesus taking the fire for you, and that's the sign that you're not trying to save yourself. That's the sign that you're not just being religious. That's the sign you're not trying to save yourself through commitment, and you find yourself getting more gentle, more tolerant, more gracious to the people around you. So follow him with me. He'll give you all that you need. He's a wonderful counselor, and he's the perfect counselor in which all other counselors pale in comparison. He will love you singularly. He will love you for who you are. Into a whole new identity with new priorities, into a person of grace and mercy. So let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us a Lord who says, follow me in this pattern of discipleship. And it's so different from our world that we're, we're not in, we don't have it all together. But as we do that, you form a new identity in us. Give us new priorities. We, we love what we used to hate. We hate what we used to love. 
and you make us into people of grace and gentleness into a true and stable self. And so, Lord, we would ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, this week to apply this in our lives, to go home and dwell on this and use the scriptures through your Holy Spirit to wake us up if necessary, to get rid of the deadness that misses the centrality of Jesus Christ in each and every one of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.